welcome to a new series we are calling Conversations With. My name is Shaylee Hugendorn and I live with Bipolar 2 Disorder. And my name is Julie Kraft and I am also living with Bipolar 2 Disorder. Julie and I believe in the power of storytelling. We know that sharing with others is healing both individually and collectively. There are so many different experiences. So we wanted to share more stories of Bipolar with you and interview others. Our stories are powerful. They can become a source of strength and hope and inspiration. Our voices need to be heard. Our stories aren't over yet. This is Bipolar. everyone and welcome back to this is bipolar conversations with I am I know I say this every week but I'm so pumped today because um, we have Dr. Monica Coleman here and can I tell you that it's the first memoir that I read about bipolar disorder and I'm <laughs> very very skeptical um, because especially like bipolar faith in her uh, with her book um, but I was like, if someone can put that in a title, I want to read that book. So I was very excited. So I will read um, Monica's bio here, and then we'll just get started. So it says, Monica A. Coleman is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. She spent over 10 years in graduate theological education at Claremont School of Theology and Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Answering her call to ministry at age 19, Dr. Coleman brings her experiences in evangelical Christianity, Black church traditions, global ecumenical work, and Indigenous spirituality in her discussions of religion. Dr. Coleman is the author or editor of six books and several articles that focus on the role of faith in addressing critical social and philosophical issues. Her memoir, Bipolar Faith, shares her lifelong dance with trauma and depression and how she discovers a new and liberating vision of God. Her book, Making a Way Out of No Way, is required reading at leading theological schools around the country. Dr. Coleman co-hosted the web series, Octavia Tried to Tell Us, Parable for Today's Pandemic. Coleman speaks widely on mental illness, navigating change, religious diversity, and religious responses to intimate partner violence. Wow. <laughs> That's an amazing uh, bio. I remember reading it and I was thinking, oh, am I smart enough to interview Monica? But I think, I think we're good. We have a lot of connection. Um, yeah, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be here. Um, I was really excited and I knew I wanted to ask you to be on the podcast and then when I saw that your book, Bipolar Faith, that it was coming, being re-released on paperback, I was like, oh, this is perfect, perfect timing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I take all the covers off because I try and make my bookshelf fancy. So the cover looks different if you buy it. <laughs> well, I saw you hold it up. I was like, oh, is that what the cover looks like? Because I never take the paper off. <laughs> oh, see, I'm always worried of wrecking them. Yeah. So I take them mm -hmm. off. But then I put them in places. I, I tried to find it. <laughs> I couldn't find it. But yeah, 
Yeah. So I would like to um, jump right in. Um, like I said, I was a little bit skeptical at first, just because I have a lot of um, church hurt, um, especially around mental health and, um, you know, just uh, renovating and deconstructing um, my faith. I, yeah, I struggle with a lot of, you know, spiritual bypassing, toxic positivity, but I knew the moment that it even opened up with your book, the sentence line, second line is, you can die of grief. You can literally get so sad that your heart shrivels up and dies. You invest so much of what you need in others and you don't know how to live without them. And it goes on and I was like, done, I'm in. <laughs> and so um, where I would love, love, love to just start is um, when did you notice and um, in the book, you talk about a family history. When did you notice that something was wrong or that um, maybe you felt differently than others? Um, I'm just curious about that. You know, it's a great question because it's hard. You don't talk to a whole bunch of other people when you're a kid, right? About your feelings that right. So I knew I was sad a lot. Yeah. Um, but I thought there were like these concrete reasons for being sad. So I really kind of attached it to circumstances, not to like something that would always be there. Mm -hmm. Even though I felt fairly, um, I was not very optimistic about not being sad as a, right. as a young person. So I don't know that I thought I'm sadder than other people, but I did think sad isn't good and I need to hide that. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's, that is true because we have no other other reference. I often think about that a little bit with my story because I was also the oldest and mm -hmm. the only girl in my family. So my parents didn't know, right? Because they right. thought this is this is the way things are. Yeah. Right, right. Interesting. And then as you as you grew up, and um, I know your story talks a lot about when you were in school, um, just maybe just talk to us a little bit about the timeline or how, you know, a leading up, I know the whole like long story leading up to your diagnosis is huge, but maybe some of the, the, the key things. Oh, it is a long road to diagnosis and it was for me, but I think it is for a lot of people. Oh, yes. And I wanted to kind of show that because, you know, it's complicated, right? It's not like, oh, there's brain chemistry, we all see this, get you to a doctor when you're 12 or 15 or even 20, right? And bing, we got it, right? Like, I guess that happens for some people, but it doesn't happen for a lot of people. And so mm -hmm. um, it wasn't that I didn't, that I didn't know that I was sad, I did. Um, and it wasn't even that I hadn't seen therapists before I was diagnosed. Um, right. I think there was a season when diagnosing was not vogue for therapists right where it's like oh we're just you know diagnosing is stigmatizing and so we're just going to help to you know treat what we see in front of us and help the yeah. person in front of us right um and again because they were kind of concrete life events right uh, my mm -hmm. grandmother's death my parents mm -hmm. divorce these kinds of things but I was like well these are natural responses to yeah. you know significant events that are difficult right um so it wasn't really until I was in graduate school, even though I had, like I said, seen therapists here and there before, um, but I was like, I really want to, you know, work on some things <laughs> and yeah, there's some yeah. campus health services, but there still wasn't a diagnosis, right? It yeah. There was just like, well, let's work on these things, right? And let's 
mm-hmm. um, talk about recovery. Let's talk about, you know, having a whole life or these different aspects. So it really wasn't until I was, you know, fairly suicidal and just like on the edge of, yeah. of life and wellness when, um, you know, a coworker, cause I looked terrible. I was, like, I was not, I was functioning, but it didn't look good. Right. 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 Um, you know, you don't sleep and you don't eat, you don't look. No, okay. I agree. Right. <laughs> and so, but I was going to work. Um, and a coworker's like, I think maybe I can, you know, you might need some help. And when I got to a therapist, they were like, I think you need a psychiatrist. Right. Yeah, like they, yeah. You know, so it was, and this is California. It's like California was kind of a, you know, further ahead than a whole, the, most of the country uh, when it comes to, you know, kind of psychology. And so I got to a psychiatrist and, you know, the first psychiatrist was really bad and made me not want to go to anyone again. Oh, I know. Sorry, <laughs> uh, and the second psychiatrist was great. And, um, and so that was when, you know, she said, well, tell me this whole story. And so I don't think anyone asked before like oh you know and like when were you feeling sad and then she's like look at that every two and a half years and I was like oh look at that right <laughs> and yeah. so, um that was really the first time and I guess the psychiatrists who do these kind of diagnoses right that I got a diagnosis and I was like oh okay well that's that's helpful good now yeah. can we help me sleep right yes. <laughs> but I wasn't yeah. even I was so excited about diagnosis I just wanted to fix what was wrong and I think that's kind of always been my mentality um but having it did help because it helped to fix what was wrong yeah yeah it's so interesting um I'm always curious you have the diagnosis of bipolar 2 um mm-hmm. I do as well I find it's also really misunderstood because you're just functioning enough right it isn't you can explain some of it right like I didn't buy a boat but maybe I spent this money I didn't you know I can still make it to class or to show up in life but I'm still a mess kind of thing right and I'm yeah and I'm curious did you so did you go for help only when you were sad or depressed yes yeah um which is why it's really hard to diagnose bipolar too because what clinicians call hypomania I mm-hmm. call normal Monica yes, <laughs> yes me too so I'm like no that's just me being normal and you know it's taken a long time for them and for friends to be like your normal is a little higher up than everyone else is normal right. but to me I'm like that's normal me or well me or healthy me mm-hmm. and so yeah I only had I didn't have problems with that I only had problems with depression and so and I think it's very common, right? You only can, many people who have bipolar two mm-hmm. only go to see someone when they're depressed. And I think diagnosing bipolar two, you need to see somebody consistently over time, yes. which yes. doesn't always happen for a lot of reasons, financial reasons. I was always moving around the country. Mm-hmm. I moved like across the country every two to three years. Oh, wow. My 20s. So I wasn't seeing the same doctors, right? The same clinicians. Um, and people didn't always ask me, well, can you look back and you know, et cetera. And so, and then there were times even after I had a diagnosis, this is not in the book, where I would see therapists who didn't seem to understand bipolar two, right? Yes. And they would say, but you're fine, but you have a 4.0. I'm like, but I'm telling you I'm sad, right? Yeah. Or, but I'm telling you I'm not okay. So you need to believe me, yeah. um, you know? And so I definitely get 
and it was a bit of a newer diagnosis at that time. So I'm like, well, maybe everyone doesn't know. But if I tell you, can't you look it up? There's no Google, but you could have looked it up. Yeah. Books, there are libraries, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to my GP and I like laid it out without trying to look like a Google Doc. And he was like, no, you wouldn't have a degree. You wouldn't be doing well raising your children. And like flat out said that, right. which literally put me behind years in getting in getting my diagnosis, right? I think that it's really un- misunderstood. I say it all the time, like, I don't like the word high functioning, because it makes you seem like it makes it seem hierarchical. But right. um, it's almost harder to get to get diagnosed. Um, and so I have a question. So you said um, you only struggle when you're sad. So with your hypomania, I'm so curious because for, for the longest time, I just thought it was me and I didn't recognize for me personally, the anxiety in the excitement and the um, urgency and irritability because it was so much better than being sad. I didn't see that as a problem, but that actually, and then the not sleeping actually is what ended me up in Emerge that, um, and I know the listeners know my the whole story, but I'm curious, do you have, um, you know, hard side effects or hard um, symptoms when you're, you know, just Monica, but the hypomania. I don't actually. And I know many people do. I know. Um, I have friends with the same diagnosis who experience anxiety or irritability and I'm just productive. Um, I'm just able to do a lot of things. Yeah multitask well oh wow um you know it's really helpful you know professionally uh in some ways of and for me they're fairly long stretches so if I'm depressed for months and months and I'm feeling pretty good for months and months I mean the hard part is when you make promises when you feel well and then you can't deliver them yes when you don't so I've had to really learn how to navigate that um and that's hard I think but I don't have so I think the biggest issue is if I'm on medication is yeah. trying to find a medication that will treat the depression, but won't push me into a mania. Yes. Um, and that's, you know, not really easy to find, <laughs> you know, that's, that's trickier. It is. It's so Just tricky because of how medications are set up. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was looking at your bio and seeing all the things I'm like, Ooh, like that's, I feel that like I do a lot of things like I'm a school teacher I do event planning I work with she loves I started a podcast like uh, it's like doing uh, I have those long searches too it's like doing all the things that someone might do in like a year in this time right yeah which helps um, but I'm curious about your sleep in hypomania because I do all those things but then I crash because I've hardly slept when I'm not pre-medication yeah well, you know, it's hard to say, right? When I was younger, you know, I wasn't sleeping then, you know, yeah. at the time that I was going to, you know, going to psychiatrist right before this diagnosis. And that still wasn't the most accurate diagnosis, right? That was like yeah. diagnosis number one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now, you know, my sleep is a little bit jacked, but it could be because, you know, I have a kid who sleeps well after you have a kid, right? Oh. Um, it, you know, it could be because of my age and hormones fluctuating. Yep. Um, so sometimes it's better than others. Sometimes it's stress. And it's like, well, I can't, I just need to eliminate the things that are causing me stress and then I'll sleep better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I don't sleep well, I can't be like, oh, it's because I'm hypomanic. It could be one of five things. Right. Yeah. And so I try to kind of go through them yeah. and address each one before I'm like, okay, now maybe it's this. 
right? Um, to see see what it might be. Because I mean, I felt like there were years I didn't sleep. But it wasn't I didn't want to sleep because I had a baby, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, I didn't sleep till she slept through the night, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting because that's very different. I know immediately, right? Because it's like, ping, I wake up that and then it goes from wanting to sleep all the time to like I barely need anything unless I'm medicated or careful so I was very curious about that and I can tell like the difference between life excitement and then otherwise it's yeah pre-medication it would be like two hours and I knew oh no no I've never quite been there I I like sleep so if I can get it you know I, I usually do so yeah. I'm not like, I've never been like, okay, I can really function well at four or five hours of sleep. If I'm functioning, it's because I have to, not because, you know, yeah. like something occurred, like baby wouldn't sleep, baby's sick or whatever. Not a baby anymore, but she was, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, usually I'm like, or I'm good for like the first part of the day and two o'clock, I'm like, nap time anymore? Right. So yeah. yeah, it's not quite that bad for me. Yeah. So in your book, it's clear, like you talk about your family and um, sadness and before, you know, there wasn't diagnosis um, Mm -hmm. back then. And so you kind of, you kind of knew that this was a thing. And then, um, because how old were you when you were diagnosed? Because you were doing your, like, gosh, let me think. 27 28 27 yeah so a little little bit later I was almost like 10 like almost 10 years later um it's really interesting because they say you know in your 20s right Mm -hmm. and I'm curious so you had this going on in your life but I'm also really would like to dive into some of the things um in your in your book that you're talking about with like trauma or other things do you think that there was a specific trigger because we know it's with bipolar it's already there or do you think it was a bunch of things or did it get worse you know like a deep deep depression at times I know because I've read the book but I would love to hear um yeah just about that time you know, I don't think of it as being triggered. Um, you know, like this happened and bam, it unleashed everything, right? Like yeah. opening Pandora's box. Like, I don't think of it that way. Um, you know, I think that discussing mental health challenges is complicated, right? Because there is this kind of medical model out there mm. that says we have a list of symptoms and we check them off, right? Which is why, and they're usually based on functionality, right? Which is why when you can function, no one knows what to do with you. So we have this list of symptoms and we think the problem is brain chemistry. So we're going to try and change your brain chemistry. And I'm not saying that's not true, but I think I wanted to say it's complicated, right? There's also poverty and war and sharecropping and slavery and traumatic events, right? And this is even before we put in epigenetics, right? That are all types of reasons why people aren't okay because who would be okay, right? Right. Right. Given these contexts. So I really wanted to say it's complicated. I can't be like, it's this thing or it's that thing, right? All of these things make me who I am, just like everyone's experiences and their past and their histories make them who they are. And we can't always tease out like it's this one thing and there's this one solution, right? It's it's bigger than that. Yes, I love that. I love that. You put words to a lot of, you know, a lot of things that I feel because I think I spent and it really didn't help with any flourishing or, um, you know, on a wellness journey, just always trying to pick apart, 
Like, what is this? And what is that? Like, my brain just wanted to compartmentalize or make it, you know, because of this. And I know there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different talk about, you know, sometimes some people do believe that there, that some trauma, and then Mm -hmm. it is a brain chemistry. We know this, but I think that that's really hard for people to understand because it's like, this happens, then we're sad or this happens. So even now, um, you know, I try to talk in medical terms sometimes to my friends or anything like I'll say, I have high cortisol levels or I have, cause yeah. otherwise everyone's like, what happened? And I'm like, nothing. I woke up. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Exactly. Sometimes nothing happens. It's just, it is right. And that's almost how you know, it. it's like nothing happened. It's just this, or sometimes I've come to think of it like things that would make someone sad make me sadder right like it's the it's the level right the degree of happiness or the degree of the depth right um of like so these are things would be hard for anyone but I'm going is deeper or it's harder for me to get out of them than perhaps it might be for somebody yeah which I totally hate by the way (laughs) like that's not fair (laughs) yeah 100% not fair 100% (laughs) I agree um Yeah, I love that you said that. So I've always tried to put that into words and you put it together so beautifully. So thank you. Um, Another thing that um, you talk about in your book and it was a really hard read. And um, I just wanted to give a trigger warning to our friends. Um, You know, we are gonna talk about different things like suicide and um, we are gonna talk about rape. So if that is something that is hard for you to listen to, please listen to your body and take care of yourself. Um, But yeah, I'm so sorry that that happened to you in, in college. And I was just wondering, I know, like, I just think, I just keep thinking how brave you are, but then I remind myself, sometimes we don't have a choice, right? <laughs> Cause sometimes when people tell me I'm brave, I'm like, I, I don't really have a choice, but I don't have another word to describe when I was reading, because first of all, talking about mental health in the church community, right? And then you're also talking about, um, you know, what ha- you're being open of what happened to you. Um, and I would just love if just if there's other um, survivors out there, I just would love to hear a little bit more of, yeah, just of, I don't know specifics, but of, mm-hmm. of your story there and how that intersects with your mental health. Um, thank you for asking about that and for saying that. It was I, inc- I didn't want to include that much. That was not the plan, right? But right. you know, as you're writing a book, it kind of takes over itself and says, no, this is important. Um, I was like, oh, this is a chapter or two. And I was like, oh, no, it's longer. Yeah. And um, partly because it was the first time I really, really was like, oh, I am not okay, right? I, I could really see that like I was, I was hitting some kind of rock bottom. And it, so I was clear about the trauma and clear about, depression not initially but within a couple months and I was getting help for that and so that was one reason right it was kind of included and I realized that this was not an individual journey either right Um, but it was one that required a whole lot of resources it required legal resources and psychological resources and I had like an individual therapist and I had group therapy which was so great and I still needed spiritual resources, which I didn't have any of, right? And that was kind of what I was wrestling with the most because I'm like, who's going to help me pray again? Who's going to help me think God is okay again? Right. Um, because there, were, there weren't clinicians or services to help with that. And I think the reason the, that part of my story became so important around mental health 
because it was surviving that that gave me the tools that let me know I could survive any other depression that was to come. Wow. Right. Um, that I would need help, that I would need community, that I would need faith, and that if I had done it before, then I could do it again. But I didn't know that <laughs> before mm-hmm. I was, you know, living through the trauma of being a survivor of sexual violence. Wow. Right. That's that's really powerful. And when um, when this when you survived this, you were in like theology school, right? Yeah. You were, how did this um, rock your faith? Like, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a part in it. You're like, how can I do this when I don't even know when I believe anymore? And I just love you to talk about that time period or for other people that, you know, are wrestling, wrestling with having a faith and, uh, you know, and surviving. Right. I mean, my violation was like most people's actually, right? It's not a stranger in a parking lot, right? Um, that happens and that's kind of like Lifetime movie. Yeah. But 95%, right, or more of people who are sexually assaulted or raped or sexually violated are violated by someone they knew, loved, or trusted prior to the assault, right? So in some ways, I wanted to kind of also show that these are people I knew, people my someone I knew, someone my friends knew. Wow. It made it super complicated, right? Yeah. I'm like, yes, we have to take sides, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and that was that was part of what was hard. You know, all of my world was pretty religious at that point. You know, I'm in divinity school. I'm trying to be a minister. Many of my friends are clergy or working on being clergy. And, but we're also regular people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who have faults and say the wrong things sometimes and say the right things sometimes. Uh, and don't always know what to do and but you're like but you're supposed to know what to do and you're supposed to do the right thing right so there's that kind of expectation right but in terms of my faith right it was it was of course devastating mm. because I had been raised with this you know this is a god that parts the red sea and sets the little hebrew children free and I'm like why didn't you part the red sea for me god right <laughs> like where where was you know where was all this like coming and intervene and make it all better um kind of thing and I think one response that many people have is like oh well I must have done something wrong and so God was punishing me and I was like no I did nothing wrong like I was really clear like I mean I had a lot of self-blame but I didn't think like God was punishing me but I was like but I don't really know what to think about you God so and this is kind of like the Leo part of me I was like "Mm, I'm done I'm good Like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just not talking to you right now. (laughs) And so, um, which is hard when like, you kind of have this job as a minister, (laughs) right? (laughs) And you have part of your program is working in a church. And I'm like, hmm, how are we going to do this? But I didn't have another plan. There's no plan B, right? This was the only plan. So I was like, well, I better figure it out. And so I kind of faked it, right? Like you just read the words, you do the thing. And, you know, you know, you have enough training to know what to do, but I wasn't feeling it, right? Mm. Um, until I really ended up at um, a church that didn't need me to fake it, right? Wow. That didn't ask me to, that didn't want wow. me to, that was like, just show up oh. and the ministry will find you. Like, you don't have to be all put together. Because um, it was a church full of people who weren't all put together, but it was still a great church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, I, I can show up. That I can do, right? Authentically. Yeah. And that was, you know, 
the beginning, I think, of having that kind of community that didn't need me to be anything other than the little broken heap that I was and didn't see me as less than human or less than worthy or less than lovable or even less than clergy because of that. Wow. I'm so grateful that you found that just because I think of what that time period was like. Like I think about stigma now in the church and then I think about it then. And yeah. So what was the time period? Because I was the question I wanted to ask you was the reaction, um, you know, when you told people either uh, family, (laughs) church, um, and when that was, because I know sometimes it takes a long time for books to come out. So did you tell a lot of people before? for the book and what was the reaction and then maybe after a two-part question after the book (laughs) right um that's a great question I mean in terms of that I was writing the book right people in my life knew as a survivor of sexual violence because I was an activist around that and talked about it and wrote about it um so that was I mean not immediately of course but after a while um so you know I'm writing the book like let's say about it comes out about maybe 10 years or 12 years after the book ends wow right right so there are other things that happened right but that's just where the book ended right so some time has passed of course and I didn't the I think I did not tell people I'll tell you that not really I um I told the people I wrote about right so the people I wrote about um because everyone except for one person this is their one I think one or two people it's their real name right and wow. so I would tell them and ask and read to them, like, can I write this about you? Are you okay with this? I didn't tell them about the whole book, but like, I'm writing this book and this is what I said. And everyone was like, yeah. In fact, I had these amazing responses. They were like, that is exactly what happened. Or I remember oh. that, or that was really a hard time and you captured it well, or that was a really great time in my life and you captured that well. And that was really moving, right? Because <laughs> um, some people I hadn't talked to in a long time, <laughs> um, but I'd been like, oh, this is what I'm writing. And they're like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Uh, I think only one person said, you know, can you change my name and the details? Because that was really hard. Um, and I don't know that I want my family to know. Not, yeah. I don't know if they would have guessed, but I did. Right. Um, and then said, you know, what name do you want? You know, we can work together. <laughs> and this is how I changed it. You know, not the interaction, but just in, in terms of being able to identify who it would be. Yeah. Um, I did not really tell my family. Because I'm like, well, your family, what you gonna do, right? You know, um, and I just, you know, I think I told my mom, but not the details of the book. Like she read the book and it came out. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't tell people in my family necessarily, oh, I have a book coming out. Oh, I'm going on book tour. Oh, it's gonna be great, meet me there, right? <laughs> um, but not really about it. And so there were various reactions afterward. Mm. Um, most of which were, fairly neutral to positive um well I mean people in my family know the stories in my family so they were like yes that is what happened um some were like oh thanks for talking about this because we don't really talk about it necessarily in my family um I think one person's like hey you should have asked me before telling this and I was like oh my bad I should have right yeah um and you know there's this kind of tension that can occur with some of the particularly some of my family members where they're like, that's my story to yeah. tell, not your story. And I kind of feel like I hear you, but it's also my story if I'm there, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if I was there and I have a response to this, this is affecting me, it's also, it's not just your story, right? Yeah. And so um, 
that can be difficult, but nobody was, nobody on that side of my family was like mad about it or anything. Some other family members were, were not happy (laughs) about some parts of the book, but they didn't read the whole book either. So I'm like, if they read the whole book, like it all ends up okay. Um, But they would read parts of it or hear about parts of it and were very upset with me. Um, not for, not that they thought I lied or told something that wasn't true. They just said it wasn't nice. And I'm like, well, no, some of it wasn't nice. <laughs> um, I don't know what to tell you about that, right? I guess yeah. not everyone can see my face, but I'm like, well, it, it wasn't a good experience to have either. Um, and so there was definitely some, I think we could say strife around that. And yeah. I was okay with that. You know, I had enough therapy. I'd made enough peace with it. To me, this was an important story to tell that I'm like, either they'll read it or they don't. Either they'll be fine with it or they won't. Either we'll continue to have a good relationship or have a sketchy relationship and it will be fine. Wow. Wow. Oh, I think, I think, think with my- I'm like, she might not get the, have the anxiety part. Cause even <laughs> I'm just like, <sighs> um, so I think with my mom, I was the most worried that she would be sad that I was sad, oh, right? Yeah. And I know, like, you don't want your kid to be sad. If you could, you protect your kid from everything bad. Even yes. though you know you can't, you yep. still want to. And so I thought that it would make her sad to know exactly how sad I had been. Yeah. But it didn't seem to. So it was okay. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's um, the time of of it coming out. Yeah. Um, I feel the same way because I feel like I try to tell people, um, you know, on the podcast or, you know, I tell family about it and I try and say, you know, that might not seem like the tr- truth to you, but it's my truth, right? It's my truth. And because uh, I love them and I have told them, but I come from a family of carpet sweepers, right? Yeah. Like, I, it's very hard to be the first one right right yeah Um, a lot of secrets a lot of silences right not serving us well I know I know and um yeah but I know that there's a lot of guilt and but I was like I can't I I can't take that on like there was a lot of guilt because just uh, my parents feeling terrible that they didn't know right or that they didn't help like oh I should have I should have and I'm like you, you can't, you know, we can't go back kind of thing. And so right. I, I still struggle with, um, I'm sharing certain things. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot more comfortable, but yeah, I'm just amazed by your, your confidence, right? Cause I care so much about relationship that sometimes I harm myself because I'm putting other people's needs ahead because I don't want them to be disappointed in me or it might make them look bad, but I'm like, it's also, it, it happened, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, no one was like, that didn't happen. They just said it wasn't nice. So I'm yeah. like, if you said it didn't happen that way, that would be one thing, that right? Would be, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But I think I came to realize like in my head, there are good guys and bad guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like they're heroes and villains. And yeah. in writing it and thinking that, oh, people I know are gonna read this and people you know, I might be writing about, even people I think are bad guys might yeah. be reading this, really helped me to see there aren't heroes and villains. Like, yeah. you know, they're just a bunch of people doing the best with what they have. Yes. Uh, and sometimes they didn't have a lot of resources to work with or just didn't have enough or the adequate or the right resources to yeah. work with that would have made things turn out differently. But 
generally speaking, there weren't people running around like, how can we be mean? How can we be hurtful, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, they may have been a little selfish or a lot selfish, but yeah. they generally weren't like, you know, they didn't have horns in their head and pitchforks in their hands, right? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then how about in then and even now? Um, yeah, just that because it's out there, people know. And I mean, you know, you've talked about you're very confident, you're an advocate, you're an activist um, about all these things. But I find I do a lot of that out. And I feel like some of the way my brain works makes me care about justice or makes me not be able to be quiet because I, it's more painful for me to not say anything. And I, I feel like yeah, I feel like, I think it's Glennon Doyle talks about the canaries in the mines, right? They're the ones that say, you know, there's the problem. And I feel, but I, I honestly feel like that, and this is not scientific at all, but I feel like that's a, that's a part of our brains because we feel things so deeply. We can't, we can't ignore what's going on. Do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's a choice ultimately right um yeah. for me it's a calling and mm -hmm. one I was not particularly thrilled about right so um, I was not particularly thrilled about the calling to speak out against sexual violence I was oh. not really thrilled about the calling to speak out about mental health and faith um but I knew they were calling and I would say I hear you God and I'm thinking maybe not <laughs> like yes and no right like I knew it would make me vulnerable there people said really mean things about me it's not like everyone loves this right yeah. I mean there were people I knew people in the community would talk to my friends um you know would talk to people I dated and say just really mean things about me and that hurt my feelings and I was yeah. like why am I doing this right. this is like this is not a good idea this is not good for my career this is not good for my love life right yeah. things you care about when you're in your 20s yes. and 30s and older right yeah. um so it wasn't that I was like oh this is a great idea yeah it was more that I felt a sense of call and as I would go back and forth with God about it, um, I felt that I was able to do it. I had what I needed to do it and that it wouldn't crush me, right, at all. And that I don't think it's everyone's calling. Like some people, like you just make it day to day, that's your calling, right? So I don't suggest that like everyone should be doing this. Yes. It, it has to be something you can do, right? And yes. you feel called to do because it is hard at times. And um, you would, there would be just enough encouragement when I was like, oh, I'm throwing it all away. I'm not yeah. doing this, right? Let me go live a little anonymous life. <laughs> um, that, you know, I would get a note or a card or something mm. that'd be like, oh, this is, this is why, this, you're on the right track. Um, so I can't say it was like, I felt immediately compelled, right? Yeah. But I did feel like, I wanted to give others resources I didn't have and resources I was looking for. Yes, 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 me too. <laughs> I feel like I just need to look. Yeah, right. I, I feel the same way. And also too, like it intersects with a lot of like, I like speaking. I like, you know, I, I, I thought I was gonna speak about not what used to be my, used to be my shame story. I thought maybe I would talk about like, you know, human trafficking or things that weren't so deeply, um, deeply, you know, a personal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like you too. Like, sometimes I'm like, take it all off the internet. And then you're <laughs> like, 
we will get a message or, or something. But I do want to touch on, I love that you said that it's not for everyone because I do get, we do get some messages like, well, how do I do this too? Or people that are just diagnosed that want to, and I'm, I try to be like, take care of yourself. Like, I feel like you need to be in a space where not fully healed because I don't believe in that. I mean, we know it's that fully healed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're not, it, I mean, it is an incurable disease. I always say I believe in miracles, but what do I do if I, in the meantime, if I don't have that miracle? And so I do, I feel like a lot of people feel like they have the pressure to be a mental health advocate. And I think, like you said, some people, I don't want them to feel bad because they can't do this. There were days that getting out of bed and drinking the water was, <laughs> was all that I can do. So I love, I love that you said that. That's, that's amazing. Um, another question, just, I guess I, uh, because I struggle, I don't, I, I'm not struggling with with my belief in God, right? Mm -hmm. But I just, I really struggle with my, you know, with my disappointment in, in people and um, it, some of it's fresh, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've had things and recently I had someone say like, why are you still talking about this? Like you're making God look bad or people aren't gonna come to church if, you know, and I'm just curious what you would, what you would say to someone struggling with with that and I do feel even though I say you know it doesn't affect my relationship with God and in fact I can feel God more in the gray right in the I used to think it had to be black or white but in this gray of the unknowing and even when I was mad or wrestling or you know sometimes it's even hard to talk on this podcast because it's not a, a faith-based podcast mm -hmm. um uh, just talking to people that that have been hurt and I'm just wondering if you have like something you a word of encouragement you know for those of us because sometimes we take the church or people and we not seeing them as individuals we you know I, I I've kind of bundled that up as as hurt and I don't want that to represent God yeah. do you know what I mean I feel like I'm not yeah. being super clear no, it's, it's clear yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Distinguishing God and the church, right? Distinguishing mm -hmm. our, maybe our individual relationship with God, our own spirituality from what happens in a communal setting, right? Mm -hmm. I think I, they're both great. They're both necessary, I think. Uh -huh. um, we don't always get them both at the same time the way we need them. But ideally, you know, we, we hold both of those things together. But God is God and people are people. People would yes. just be people in, right? So that means that, um, you know, all the all the fallibility of people is people, right? And um, churches are doing better than they yeah. used to. And I think many faith communities are, but they still got a good way to go. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think even what we think about God, we understand that we have maybe more options than what we were raised with, yes. but we don't always know then what, right? Yeah. So. I think on the individual spirituality level, I would say, you know, what I didn't, what no one ever told me was that mm -hmm. I was going to lose faith. And yeah. I think we act like that's a really bad thing. Like you're not supposed yeah. to lose your faith. Like you're supposed to hold yeah. on your faith, keep the faith as an expression, not lose the faith. Yeah. But yeah. losing faith is part of the spiritual journey. 
and no one told me that like you're going to lose your faith in fact you're going to lose it a couple times like more than <laughs> once <laughs> but you'll also find it again and that was what I wish people had told me and what I always want to tell people like if you feel like you're losing your faith that's part of the spiritual journey that yeah. people lose faith over and over again um and I think it's the first time you do it <laughs> you lose it and when it usually happens because in my experience right of either this real break around issues of social justice or yeah. um, because of experiences of deep suffering, which might be the same for some people. Right. And we don't always know what to replace our faith with, right? So I've lost it, now what, right? So I'm yes. a theologian by day. And so I feel really passionate about teaching people like, oh, here are some other options, right? Here are some ways to, you know, you don't, it's not the only option, but here's, here's what I've liked. Here's what's worked for me and maybe try it and see if it works for you. Um, as kind of like, Hey, I, that big, you know, Santa Claus God didn't work for me, but so long, <laughs> right? you know, making that list yeah. good people, bad people, you give, you get yeah. punishment, right. You get coal in your stocking. Um, and I think in terms of wider communities, you know, I also spend a lot of time talking to clergy and talking to church leadership. Um, because again, I don't think there's malintent, but a lot of times people just don't think about what they're saying or what they're teaching, or they haven't thought about the implications of what they're saying or teaching. And they're beginning to say, oh, I should be more sensitive to this, but I don't know what to say or do. Um, so I think community, faith communities are getting better at it, (laughs) um, slowly, but it's hard to find one and pandemic doesn't help anything. Right. But, um, I don't, I'm not saying that they're great communities every 10 feet. I have not found them every 10 feet, right? It's hard. And you have to kind of be on this like very dedicated journey um, to find them. But I also think people are finding community in more creative ways than we did like 50 years ago, right? Like your girlfriends at brunch might be your, your, your faith community, right? Or the people you found in an online, you know, group or, um, you know, Facebook group or whatever, a Reddit group or something, they might be the people who you really feel like, hey, we're journeying together. Um, And we have some shared values and some shared beliefs. And I'm like, all of that is is what it is great, right? So wherever we find doesn't have to look the way it used to look. Yeah, that's beautiful. I remember the first time my friend Idolette was like, we were all together and we were having like these amazing hard but true and honest conversations and I remember her saying this is church and it blew my mind because I'm like you know um yeah that that we could even are we allowed to say that right and what you just said communities um like I said our our podcast and our podcast community online is such a beautiful it feels like church to me because it feels true and honest and real right and we may not all all believe but it feels it feels like the honesty there and the um you know like the brokenness that we speak about feels feels like like church to me that's really beautiful because I think we think and we were taught especially if we grew up or were part of evangelical churches and I know I didn't you know come to that till I was like 18 or 19 so I desperately wanted to do the right thing you know or what was supposedly the right thing because I didn't grow up and I didn't you know I a lot of my choices weren't considered (laughs) maybe you know following the rules of the quiet submissive woman I mean not that I follow those now but um 
yeah, so just that idea of of finding God always there, right? There's this idea that it's in a church or it has to be a certain way. And um, I love, I love, 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 love that you said that. Um, what do you think? Oh, I know what I also want to say. So I know, so I've written for Sanctuary Ministries and I've noticed that you're working with Sanctuary Ministries right now, which is amazing. Um, and I'm I love, I love that you're doing that. And I love what they're trying to do because tell me if you agree with me, but I feel like because we go to faith leaders, uh, pastors, uh, you know, um, even what they call in the church, for those of you that don't go to church, they call them lay leaders, which is as fancy for saying you don't have the degree, but you can go out and lead a small group kind of thing. And I feel like there's, um, a lot of uh, a lot of people go to them, right? And I did too when when we're feeling like this. But there's like generally, and I'm not trying to group everybody, but generally there's little to none education about psychology and um, and mental health and trauma. And um, yeah, do you is that a part of your work that drives you um, that you want? Uh, more leaders to be trained and maybe just tell us a little bit about um, your hope with saying like working with sanctuary. Um, yes, I really do think, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's around, you know, sexual violence, which I was doing for a number of years and now around mm -hmm. mental health, that the more religious leaders know, right, the better they can help people. I mean, as clergy, I know that people bring things to you that you are like wholly untrained to help with. Yeah. You're like, oh, hmm, I don't know what to say, right? And, you know, generally schools will tell you, oh, refer people, right, to clinicians or to the right source, which is good and important, but there's still something that only faith communities can do. So even if a problem needs like a therapist or a problem needs like a social worker or whatever, there's, you still need someone to pray with you. You still need someone to meet you in the hospital, right? You still need these things that kind of are clergy things to do and not to say, terrible, horrible theological shit to you yeah, <laughs> when you're experiencing right? them. And so um, I do think it's so important to, to have those resources. And I love that Sanctuary is providing them, you know, and that they provide them in all types of different ways and they're, you know, free or like nearly free um, and that they use videos and workbooks, right? It's, it's, it's great. And I have had the best time working with them, mm -hmm. um, so you know, both- awesome. They are, you know, both, you know, sharing my story and then kind of, um, you know, as someone who knows a little bit about these things yeah. as well. And so I'm really looking forward, actually, to seeing the parts that I've worked on come out when they come out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think it's really important. And so a good part of my work is that. And then, you know, the other part is I just want us to have like keep it real resources, right? Yes. You know, <laughs> like, you know, if you, most devotionals are for really holy people. They who always love God. And I'm like, who are these people? This, this, is not, this is not helpful. I want to be like, I read this scripture and it sucks. Yeah. And so, you know, I tried to, you know, write about that. Like, look at my book, Not Alone, right? Yeah. Um, this is a devotional for like real people. And now I made it a kind of a bigger program in, for my, it's a 40 day faith program for those who live with depression um, to be like, no, this is what it really feels like. And they that wait on the Lord are waiting a long time. And it, I don't like it. <laughs> I am not mounting it with wings like eagles, right? Like, let's really talk yeah, about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I also try to provide, you know, kind of resources 
for what our spirituality is really like. Yeah, I love that. I love that because I, yeah, I'm always nervous to bring on, it sounds so terrible, but I'm nervous to bring on people of faith on the podcast just because of, you know, saying, do not be anxious in anything or saying, you know, those kind of things. Not, and like you said, it's not, uh, really, I mean, yes, there are some harsh, but it's not, it's generally well-meaning people, but it's so deeply hurtful because you already generally think there's something wrong with you, right? And so I love, love that you're doing that. And I love that it's training. And I, you know, my hope is that when churches use this, the, the people that are showing the videos and implement it, hopefully have an understanding um, and are able to do, to do it well. I, yeah, I just think, you know, we're hearing of a lot of uh, pastors and clergy and, um, you know, faith leaders that were struggling alone and quietly mm. and be, and feel like they have to have the answers. And um, yeah, I think that's my greatest, greatest hope for the church because we know it's supposed mm-hmm. to be the messiest place. So I'm not sure why we shine it up. I, I, I'm, I'm confused about that. And I just think it could just be, mm. Um, yeah, such, such a beautiful space. I love that so much. Um, what do you think is the most, or I'm not very good at one, having one answer, but some of the most, um, misunderstood things about living with bipolar disorder. Oh, wow. I think people often mistake bipolar too. They don't know there's bipolar too. They think there's just one yeah. bipolar, right? Yeah. And it's the one you see on TV, which is much more, it's much better for drama than bipolar two is, right? Ours is not really that cinematic worthy. Um, so I understand that. But I do think, yeah, people assume that bipolar anything means bipolar yeah. one, right? Where there are much higher manias, right? Yeah. And um, you may don't even show much of depression, but also have depression as yeah. well. So I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions um, that I think is out there and not knowing, you know, kind of what the different ways manias can look, the different ways hypomania can look. I think people kind of get depression as like sad, hard, can't move, right? Um, But I don't think people always get what manias or hypomanias are like in a different ways, right? You can have just like the word cancer, you can have like the word cancer and then you gotta go to the subcategories, right? So you could say bipolar or bipolar two, but it's different for different people, right? Yeah. Um, we have different symptoms, different ways we live with it. So I think that I would say is probably the biggest misconception about it. And the idea that, um, I guess that you're any crazier than anybody else, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that, you know, that you have mood swings and that's going to make you unstable yeah. and hard to deal with. Like yeah. I said, not really more than anybody else, I don't think. But I think that's definitely a misconception, right? That you're always going to be in, living in extreme. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is long periods, uh, can be long periods, I know, of stability. And I know that, um, yeah, I know that on TV as well, even isn't always an accurate representation of people with bipolar one, right? Because right, it's TV, right? <laughs> it's always, um, you know, very, as soon as I see sometimes there's going to be a crime or there's this and the way that they're going, I'm like, 
they're going to blame it on mental illness, right? It's good. Right. Oh, you always see it. You're like, no. yeah. And I have met a lot of people that live with mood disorders and like little to none are, are violent, right? right? And, you know, my dream is that we have TV shows or movies or, or things where there's a character that lives with bipolar, but that's not the main story. Right. It's like, right? by the way. Yeah, and every yeah. now and again you'll see it, right? And I get so excited when I, I do. Know. I know, or if it's represented represented well, because even though you know that is interesting and it's art, and of course we have to do dramatic things, we don't realize that that really feeds into the stigma, especially if someone hasn't met somebody. And let me right. tell you, they probably have, but they have they right. haven't told. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like people talk more and I use this for a very long time depression and anxiety because I feel like that's more kind of an understood thing because people can feel levels of it that maybe don't have um you know chemical imbalance but I feel like the word has been made so scary right it took me a long time time to claim that I would love I think I can find it because I know a lot of the messages we get are you know I relate so much um you know but i'm scared of a of a diagnosis or what does that mean because there are some things that aren't great that happen right like with insurance with there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of things like it it is a risk to know right it is but it's such a greater risk to not not right It's, it's saving saving lives but I love how you explained it in here. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, And I just wanted to read it because it's so great. It says, but bipolar two, it had a name. My condition felt like an episode of the television series House where patients with unknown illnesses come to be diagnosed by a team of specialists. They spend 55 minutes on the show running tests, trying to figure out what is wrong. But once they know they can save a patient's life, that part takes less than five television minutes. There's something to be said about knowing and naming a condition. It could mean something to my doctors. It would tell them not to give me certain medicines. It could guide them towards medicines that would help. It was the code word for my condition. It's bipolar two, not epilepsy or autism or brain cancer. The naming helped me feel sane. Hearing myself described on paper so well down to the details suggested that the happy, studious, successful part of me was not a lie, a facade or a mask that I wore to hide my depressions. Rather happiness is who I, a part of who I am as well. And I wanted to say aloud, happiness is a part of who I am as well. The name Bipolar 2 officially said that I was more than depression. There is and always has been another side of me. And it was no less real than the sad side. Amen to that, right? Because it's so hard because of the stigma and honestly self-stigma as well that we've learned and internalized and don't even realize. Um, I just... I just want that freedom. I remember being equally terrified and equally being free because there was something, because then it's not like just an actual personality in my core flaw. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, at that time, you know, that I was writing about, there was no mental health parity, right? It was virtually impossible to get, you know, insurance that would cover health insurance that would cover anything from mental health. 
Um, you know, I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to get life insurance. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't think about those things too. Um, even at a, you know, fairly young age where I cannot really think about life insurance, but I know, right. Oh, wow. I'm going to have problems getting life insurance or, oh, I might not be able to get health insurance or, right. Like you shouldn't have to worry about that. You know, just, you know, you, you do, but you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't be like the thing that's going to save my life shouldn't therefore make the rest of my life just paperwork difficult right <laughs> um you know or uninsurable or you know I mean so I, I really feel like those kind of stigmas are still there right and yeah. that that's maybe after the pandemic well where everyone's been depressed and everyone's on medication <laughs> maybe they'll make some maybe they'll make some changes well I feel like I love that you brought that up because I remember feeling somewhat calm when it first happened and people are like why isn't this worse you have like a part of it your disorder is anxiety disorder right like that's how it presents for me um in some ways and I'm like because I kind of am planning this like my whole life like I've kind of already I think catastrophically or huge so this is like shocking to other people. And yes, of course it's shocking to me. And I'm looking around like, what even is this? But I was like, I've always thought in (laughs) big catastrophes. So it wasn't like that. And I remember a few people saying, like, you feel like this a lot of the time, that must be so hard. And I was like, like I bawled. I'm -hmm. like, yeah, right. Because it isn't just like- You um, felt seen, like someone sees it. And I'm hoping that when, you know, things are a little bit more restricted here in Canada, but I'm hoping as they lift that people don't forget that, right? And how are we gonna, here I am going catastrophic. I'm like, how are we gonna deal with our collective trauma? (laughs) Well, I mean, those are good questions to ask. Those are very important questions to ask. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I could talk to you for 5 million hours and I kind of feel like we're best friends now. So (laughs) I just love it. I just want to thank you so much for coming and just thank you for your work because honestly, you know, I had, I had seen a few, um, you know, stories about bipolar, but you were actually the first person that Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, there are actually, because I started to feel like there wasn't um, people of faith that had bipolar or that at least talked about it. It definitely feels like that. (laughs) It does, right? And and we know that not to be true, but just that you put yourself out there. um, Honestly, it helped me go for help. You were a stepping stone to saving, (laughs) saving a part of my faith. And I just, I just wanted to thank you that. And I know that your book will do that for others. And so we'll put it all in the show notes, how to get your hands and there's an audio book now too oh that's awesome did you get to yeah. read it no I didn't read it I thought about it but I was like do I really want to reread these right things? I was thinking that would be so hard yeah, yeah. that would be an mm-hmm. audio book maybe don't be driving the whole time right. <laughs> some tears but I love that I love I love that it's so accessible so yes, I just wanted to thank you um, for all your work and all you do and just, just for who you are. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. You can find previous as well as future episodes on YouTube for the video version. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. And we spend most of our time where you can join our community and interact on Instagram at this.is.bipolar. It is so helpful if you enjoy our work 
or think it would be helpful to someone if you could like and share and save and follow us in all or any of those spaces. Another thing that's really, really helpful if you're a listener for the podcast, if you could leave a review, we would be forever grateful. Again, thank you for being here with us. Let's get the word out. Let's share lived experiences so that we can change the ideas that people have about bipolar and help those of us that live with it feel less alone. See you next time. Thank you.